A reading from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus, filled with his power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think about this, these readings, really, and this reading, particularly from Luke's gospel, this interaction with Jesus, that you would help us to understand it and understand how we might be hearers of the thing that Jesus is saying to us, and that we might respond in faith uh, to what we learn of Jesus this morning. So meet us, we ask in his name. Uh, amen. So uh, if you were here on Wednesday during the Ash Wednesday service, I mentioned a little book by Walter Brueggemann that he's written, a reflect, series of reflections on the Lenten season. And, and in that book, he opens, the, he opens his reflections by just observing that the Lenten season is an opportunity for each of us to ponder our baptism, to ponder our baptism and to conceptualize again what it means to live as a child of God's promise, what it means to live a life worthy of our calling in the face of false patriotism, hedonistic consumerism, easy conventional violence, 
and limitless acquisitiveness. And he concludes this way. He says, since these forces of seduction are all around us, we have much to ponder. I liken those words to Paul's famous statement in Romans chapter 12, where he very simply urges the church to be a community that is not conformed to the pattern of life in this broken world, but is transformed by the mind renewed. So during the Lenten season, one of the things that we have the opportunity to do is to very intentionally ask God to help us to see those gaps in our lives between the realities of his baptismal affirmation over our lives and the way we actually go about living life in the world, uh, the way we get stuck, the way we live in this economy, this global economy, the way we live with technology, the way we live uh, in a world that is indeed marked by violence, as we heard so painfully uh, this week. Um, we live in a context that is just constantly inviting us, or to use Brueggemann's words, seducing us to just play the same old pattern over and over and over again. And the Lenten season is this particularly unique moment when the church around the world is sort of hitting pause and saying, wait, you know, what are we being seduced by? What is the pattern of my life? And what is the hope of the baptism that Jesus has brought into our reality, our life with him? So it's this permission to stop and to ponder our baptismal relationship to Jesus himself and to seek um, transformation not conformity. And to help us do that uh, this season, one of the things we're going to be doing each, each Lord's Day, each time we gather for worship, is we're going to be looking at stories and events, episodes, out of Luke's account of Jesus' life. And we're looking at these accounts because we want to understand how did Jesus conceptualize and practice the kingdom of God? What did it look like to sort of live in this alternative way in the midst of the broken world as he experienced it at that particular moment as a way of helping us to understand the world of justice that God wants to create and that he actually wants to involve our lives in. Now, so this text, here we are at Luke chapter 4. And this is that amazing moment when Jesus, very publicly in his hometown, right, uh, imagine yourself uh, as a part of that synagogue congregation, you're like anyone, you've just come to, to sort of worship that day. And Jesus rises and he takes the scroll of Isaiah and he declares that these words are fulfilled in their presence. It's a really remarkable moment. Now before we unpack that, I want you just to think a little bit about what happened just before this. Because Luke sets us up to think about that, right? He, he opens this section by sort of calling to mind what about Jesus? That, you know, the devil was finished with him, right? At least for the moment, right? Jesus has passed through this moment of intense uh, uh, temptation, which itself follows Jesus' own baptism. So first think about his baptism. <clears throat> what is going on when Jesus presents himself for baptism by John? This is a moment when Jesus, in a very public way, says, I will identify with the brokenness of this people. There was nothing that Jesus needed to repent of. <laughs> his life with God and his life with neighbor 
bore the mark of perfect love. It just did. And, and so he had nothing to sort of particularly say, uh, I repent of this and I get on with God's promise of the kingdom. I align myself with, the problem, with this promise of the kingdom. But instead, what Jesus is doing in that remarkable moment is he's saying, I'm aligned with the promise of God's kingdom. And that means for me that I identify myself with the vulnerabilities of these people their brokenness, their sin, I will relate to that as if my own. And in that amazing moment of baptism, when Jesus very symbolically in this, you know, I think of the baptism of Jesus as this sort of right brain moment, right? It's this, it's this symbolic declaration on the part of Jesus. And in that moment, there is all of the gospel writers, they, they record, when they record that moment, they speak of what? They speak of this voice from heaven, right? The voice of the Father that is spoken over Jesus in that moment. You're my beloved son, and with you, I'm, with you I am pleased. Jesus just simply steps into the waters of baptism, identifying with the brokenness of the vulnerable creation. And the Father says, that's my beloved son. I'm pleased. Because Jesus is doing son-like things by using his own self for the sake of another, by giving himself for the sake of others. And God affirms that and the spirit descends on him and he's anointed and then he's catapulted, then he's driven into this moment, this moment in the wilderness in which there's this intensive moment of temptation with the devil that is a strange, you know, intense kind of encounter that none of us want to encounter ourselves, but Jesus apparently encounters something of that and it is an absolute challenge to both Jesus' own baptismal declaration to live in a sun-like way in the life of the earth. And it's a challenge to God's words over his very life, my beloved son. Will you live by what God says? Or will you live by the word of the devil, right? That's the challenge for Jesus. And so Luke 4 picks up at the tail end of that, after Jesus sort of comes back into, out of the wilderness, into public life. <clears throat> and he's in this moment of his childhood synagogue, right? These are people that he grew up with. These are persons that he would have worshipped with. These are people that knew him. They knew his family. And he rises in that context and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah at Isaiah chapter 61. And he declares its fulfillment. So a few things to think about in connection with this. The first is just this, that Jesus is filled with the Spirit. It's almost certainly what we're meant to understand by that is that whatever we make of this unique moment when Jesus stands and he offers this sort of declarative word regarding, related to Isaiah chapter 61, that we're meant to understand that all of this is one piece of his life, intimately woven in and, and sort of overflowing out of his own baptismal identity as the son of God. So here he stands in the midst of the townspeople, of people that knew him. And he begins to reflect with them on what it means for him to be so closely identified with God's agenda. His life and his mission. Now second, think about the content of what Jesus describes here. What is the meaning and the mission of his life as he relates it or tags it to this Isaiah text? Isaiah speaks of good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight for the blind, and release for the oppressed, and the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. 
So these are very old promises of God in which Isaiah, like many of other prophets, really all of the prophets of the Old Testament, sort of begin to reference and remind God's community of the things that God loves, the things he's committed to, the way he's committed to relating, particularly to the vulnerable in their society. That's really what, what the prophets are often sort of pushing Israel on, right? Either they're not relating to the vulnerable as God relates to them, and God is sort of reminding them of, of the way he would relate to the vulnerable, the way he would relate to persons of need, or he's sort of giving them this moment, which the Isaiah text is, is this moment of eschatological hope. That, hey, the kingdom of God will one day come and all of the earth will live in this way in relation to the poor, in relation to the captives, right? There's this sort of hope, this anticipation of a future. The prophets speak of the way in which you and I are tempted to conform to the pattern of this world and how it's so different from God's pattern with our world. During uh, the, the January classes, when we take that little hiatus break, right, from, um, from community groups and we do classes, the Sunday morning class, one of the, one of the Sunday morning classes was that the deacons led this offering uh, on the topic of justice. And, um, and they used the Bible Project pro- uh, podcast, right, uh, its series on justice as a way of sort of launching into that and discussing that week after week. And by the way, if you weren't able to be a part of that class and you haven't listened to that podcast, let me just really encourage you very strongly to do so because it's really excellent. And in that podcast, Tim Mackey observes this. He observes this about our own societies. He's reflecting on our struggle with justice and how we get so confused with justice and how we um, disagree with one another about what justice might actually look like so often. He says, you know, in our culture, in our moment, we, we tend to think of, we fall into different categories or different frameworks for thinking about justice. We either think of it as maximizing the welfare of the most people or we think about it as freedom for the most people or we sort of get, we sort of hang out in that space of justice as virtue. He says, but the problem with that is that the Bible sort of appreciates all three of those perspectives. It doesn't sort of, so it doesn't sort of get lost in one of them at the expense of others. It pulls all three together, and it actually does much more. In the biblical story, a just community or a just society is a community in which the vulnerable members of society are protected and cared for. Do you want to know what a just society looks like? It looks like a society that would look at the persons and members of its community, the people that live inside of those borders, and it would say, who are the least of these? Who are the most needy? Who are the people, who are the captives? Who are the poor? Who are the strangers, the immigrants, and just so on and so forth, right? It would look at our world and our society, and it would sort of begin to look at the way we hierarchically arrange our lives as a community, and we value certain people, and we devalue others. A just society looks at those that are devalued and has compassion on them and care for them. That's the mark of a just society. It's a community in which everyone sort of holds on to their relative power and they hold it for the sake of another. That whether you consider yourself wealthy or poor, right? It doesn't matter, right? Where, where are you? What is your relative power? What is your relative greatness? What are your relative resources? And you imagine, how do I leverage myself as a gift to them? That's a just society in the biblical frame of reference. 
The Isaiah text that Jesus reads has that view, that biblical view of justice in mind. God's interest is in the vulnerable and the marginalized members of society. People at risk, people for whom life has not gone well, whether that's because of their own fault or the fault of others. Whether it's a legitimate not going well or an illegitimate not going well, it doesn't matter. The prophets remind us that God cares for the least of these. And Jesus takes the words of Isaiah in particular, and he says the poor, the captives, the blind, the powerless, their problems are my problems. If you want to understand the kingdom of God, if you want to understand the messianic identity of Jesus as it relates to the kingdom of God, think about the text of Isaiah. Think about the word of the prophets that bring us into that which God loves and God cares about. And you will understand the person of Jesus and you'll understand the kingdom of God. So the poor, who are they? You know, it's interesting, whenever you're in any kind of evangelical circle and we start talking about the poor, you know, it's very easy for us to very quickly sort of run over to spiritual poverty, right? It's like, it's a lot easier for me to think about my spiritual poverty than to sort of linger around the way I relate to real poor people, right? As, do you feel that tension? So you begin to identify, you read these texts, and you're like, okay, well, who are the poor? Who are they? We're eager to sort of clear up that definition so that on the one hand, you see, I want to know, am I the recipient of Jesus' ministry? Is there a way to, for me to sort of squeeze in to the interest of Jesus, right? I mean, I, I want to be there, and you want to be there too. And so you hear these words that Jesus says define his interest, and immediately we're struggling to understand, how do I get there? Am I there? And more challenging, I think, perhaps, is not just are we there? Is there some way for us to appreciate or be near the poor, the captive, the blind, the physically struggling, right, the oppressed, and so be a part of the ministry of Jesus and be recipients of the ministry of Jesus along with other people? Is there a way for us to get there? But on the other hand, there are these very real lingering questions, right, in our hearts and our minds when we ponder our baptismal identity. Am I becoming like Jesus and his interest? Do I care about the things Jesus cares about? Do I care about the people Jesus cares about? Do I see the people that Jesus sees? Joel Green in his commentary on Luke says that the poor is a category of persons that would include anyone and everyone in that moment or our moment that lacks advantage based on those things that the majority of the society would privilege. So in other words, just think about how society measures the value add of someone, right? You're educated, uh, gender, race, economics, family lineage, family heritage, right? Oh, you're from a good family. Just sort of imagine all the ways in which ordinary life then and ordinary life now gets stratified and the way we value certain things and we hierarchically arrange people inside of those categories. See, the poor would be anyone that don't measure up inside of those standards. 
They can't get to the middle. They can't get to the middle of focus. They can't be seen because they're excluded. They're lo- they live at the margins. They don't have the capital, whichever kind of capital you're talking about. The poor stand at the margins of the gathered community, and God says, and here Jesus says, their plight is my plight. That's where my heart is. And then Jesus adds that these things are happening because he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, hold on that for a moment. The year of the Lord's favor, right? So most scholars uh, of the Bible would say that language like that is almost certainly tagged to the Old Testament concept of Jubilee, which was descri- is described in Leviticus 25 if you want to go back and read it. But basically it goes something like this, that every 40 years or so the, that the land right, that had changed hands inside because of economic advantage and disadvantage, right? You're a family and you have to sell off part of your land in order to pay some bills or in order to provide for your family. That the the year of Jubilee was a moment when land reverted back to original ownership. The year of Jubilee was a moment when if you had sold yourself in terms of some sort of service or slavery because of economic hard times, that you were liberated, right? The year of Jubilee is a time when debts were canceled. I mean, just so on and so forth. And so it's this radical ethical sort of sort of practice that God gives Israel to practice. Now, you know, th- there's a lot of debate as to whether or not they ever really practiced it, right? And you can imagine why. But here's the beauty of it. God understands that by legitimate and illegitimate means, human beings thrive and they succeed in life. That we move about in this stratification. Some of us do well, some of us do more poorly. Sometimes it's my fault, sometimes it's not my fault. But God says, I'm not so worried about fault here. I'm concerned about those who are experiencing loss. However you got there, I'm concerned about those who experience loss. And in this practice of Jubilee, God says, I'm giving you, the community of my people, the opportunity to be like me in my concern for those who are experiencing loss. Will you get near those I love? That's the picture of Jubilee. Jubilee was provision for those that had become the most vulnerable in their society. And it was a way in which God very specifically declares his own concern and invites the community to participate in it by their own commitment and their own love and their own practice. And Jesus, in essence, is saying here of his ministry, of his life, of the kingdom of God, that it is about Jubilee. It is about good news for the poor. It's about release for the captives. It's about freedom for the oppressed. It's about sight for the blind. Third thing to reference. Jesus says that this word is fulfilled in your hearing, and then he sits down, right? This is that, you know, if you're, so here you are, right, at worship. And this is just weird. <laughs> you know, he reads the scroll. He doesn't give a little sermon sort of moment on it. He just reads this text, and he says, fulfilled, done. And he sits down, right? This is the mic drop moment for Jesus in the midst of that congregational moment. And people are fixated on Jesus as he's saying these things. They're curious about Jesus and what he's doing. They're transfixed. What does it all mean? A couple of final thoughts. The first is this. It is that there's nothing surprising about this. It is not surprising at all 
given what we know about the prophetic witness about God's coming kingdom. And Jesus recognizes this when he speaks of its fulfillment, that this day of God's anointing has come. Think about Micah 6.8, for example. You know, we, we walk around, and, I'm, you know, and you do this, and I do this too. It's like, well, what does God want me to do? What is God's will for my life? Uh, if, have you ever asked that question of yourself? You, usually it surfaces in context like this. Do I take this job or not? Do I date this person or not? Do I move in with this roommate or not? Do I, uh, you know, what major should I major in in college? Uh, you know, and just so on and so forth. Should I buy this house or not? And just, you could just keep going on of how you and I mark out our questions about God's will. What does God want? And this is, you know, Micah 6, 8 is a really beautiful example of where God just very, very plainly says, this is what I want. He says this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, that is his will, to do justice. That is what? To take up the plight of the vulnerable. To love mercy. That is to align your heart with those with whom God's heart is aligned. And to walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, my life, this kingdom of God that is coming in me is about that. It's about that. The second thing is this. When Jesus says this is fulfilled in your hearing, I think there's an invitation here for us. For us to participate in that fulfillment in a sense, if you want to think about it that way, right? It's an invitation that you and I would become people who hear Jesus saying this. And so as we ponder our own baptismal identity, right, amidst the temptations of this life, right, the seductions of life in this particular culture, in this space, that you and I would let Jesus shape our loves, our wants, our practices, the way we use power, the way we hold on to our greatness, or the way we give it away. And this is what's so hard and so very challenging about the season of Lent, is it means that we have to hit pause, and we have to begin to ponder in honesty, what does it mean to be baptismally joined to Jesus and who he is? We didn't read the sort of follow-up verses in Luke chapter 4, but if we kept reading, basically you discover this. The hometown crowd is immediately sort of astounded by the generosity of Jesus' words. But then there's some murmuring that begins to happen in the midst of the congregation. Wait, 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 wait. This is Jesus. He's Joseph's boy. This is Jesus. He's Joseph's boy. In other words, they're beginning to question the validity of Jesus to say something as dramatic and great as this. They're beginning to doubt Jesus, and then that becomes an occasion when Jesus speaks, that famous sort of a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, right? Uh, you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Yeah, just so on and so forth. There's this dialogue about how the hometown advantage is not usually an advantage <laughs> for the prophet. And Jesus tells them Old Testament stories about Elijah and Elisha who were called outside of Israel to minister and serve persons that are not part of the community of God's people. In other words, people well outside the margins. And at that moment, the crowd is enraged with Jesus. 
and they want to drive him out and drive him over a cliff. They want to kill him. The astounding and the extreme ethic of Jubilee is a really hard ethic for us to take in and practice because it means to take refuge really in your life with who Jesus is against all of the other things, the seductions of our culture that are urging each of us to sort of value those ways of being human and to build life in those ways and to relate to one another on those terms. But Jesus calls us to become people that remember that in him, the baptismal words of God over our very lives because of his baptism, because of his love for us, because he gave his life away, is just this, that when Jesus looks on your life, his words to you are just very simply, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with you I'm pleased. So that as we exit the church in just a little bit, that all week long, the words that are constantly ringing in our ears as we think about how to love one another, how to love neighbor, how to think about the will of God in this world, how to think about our own lives in this world, that the words that would mark and shape everything that we do, every word that we say, every interaction that we have, would be to remember that God speaks a word of love over us because of and inside of Jesus. That's what it means to ponder our baptismal identity and to hold on to it amidst our own temptations. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we think about these interactions of Jesus and that you would help us to know your great love for us and you would show us those ways that we are seduced by the brokenness of this world, the way we give ourselves to wrong ways of being human and broken ways of being human, that you would remind us that you have loved us in such a way as to set us free and to call us to a very different way of living life in this broken space of our world. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The offering is a time when we think about God's love for us. We offer our hearts as gifts to him now. Let's do that.